If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, the, the words of that first song um, that were just being played during the offertory continue to kind of echo in my head. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Lord, we uh, come before you as one. Uh, you are one whose love endures forever. And so we come as those who are grateful, those who have received your grace. And yet you tell us, even though we've already received so much from you to bring our requests to you because you are a generous God. And so even now, having just looked at your word, um, our prayer is that this time of meditating on it together would lead us to hear you, um, would lead to renewal of our minds and our hearts that more and more we would be the people that you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So over the years, I have come to understand that I have a strong cringe sympathy reflex. What I mean by that is maybe you're like this too. Sometimes if you see like on TV something that's an awkward moment and you just find yourself feeling really uncomfortable, that's me. So like um, The Office, how many people, some of us used to watch The Office when it was on. Jennifer will tell you that when I would watch The Office with her, I was like a little kid with a scary movie. I mean, like, there would be certain moments where Michael Scott would do something super awkward, and I literally would have, like, hands in front of my eyes. Sometimes I would, like, fall on the ground and, like, have my face on the floor because I was just so overcome by the embarrassment. I just couldn't, like, there's this sympathy for how terrible that must have felt. And I suspect then that, that I would have been feeling really uncomfortable if I were part of the Philippian church when this letter was read. I don't know if you realize that, but whenever Paul writes a letter to a church, usually what would happen then is one of the leaders of the church, everyone would gather Sunday morning, and he would read the letter to the congregation. And you can only just imagine how it must have been, where you you first hear these encouraging words of how Paul is doing, even though he's in prison, he is encouraged because he has Christ, and then he challenges us that to live is Christ, and you're all with it, and suddenly he says, and I want Euodia and Syntyche to get along. I mean, can you imagine if, like, say right now in the sermon, I'm like, Matt, Tim, you need to stop fighting. 
It would be an awkward moment, I would think. I mean, it certainly would have been, you can just imagine what it must have been like then, where, where suddenly people just kind of paused. Did I just hear this? And they kind of like sidelong glance, try to look at Yodia and sink to key. And of course, their faces are red. And you, you know, there's silence. And there's this question of, did Paul just really call these two people out? Now, this signifies something, doesn't it? This shows that for Paul, this, this conflict between two people within the church is not something that you can rest content with. Now, now, to clarify here, we should recognize that it's not that he has anything against Yodia and Syntyche. In fact, he speaks really highly. These are two women who have fought side by side with him for the gospel. They are people whose names are written in the book of life. They are mature. He loves them. And it's also not a situation where he's really concerned about what they are arguing about. Sometimes, like in 1 Corinthians, when there's arguments within the church, Paul will weigh in and says, now about this, let me tell you what's the wrong way and the right way of viewing this. He doesn't say anything like that here, which shows he's not really worried about the subject matter. It's not one of those things that has deep theological issues. But he is, he is concerned, but it's, it is, you know, if it's two mature Christians and there's not one of those major issues, what do we have? We have one of those things that happens all the time where two people just find themselves having a hard time getting along. I mean, you can imagine how it must be. Maybe, you know, let's assume maybe Yodia was kind of more of a dreamer, a big picture kind of person, and Syntyche was an organizer, you know, never met a checklist that she didn't love. And, and the two of them maybe were working on some sort of church outreach project, and Yodia has these fantastic big ideas, and Syntyche is just kind of like impatiently waiting and eventually saying, this is too big, we can't do this, and Yodia is like, you are not a person of faith. If we pray, it will happen. And then Syntyche comes back and says, do you remember what happened last time we prayed to see if it would happen? And then it just kind of goes devolving worse and worse and worse, and suddenly they don't want to talk to each other anymore. I mean, I mean we know situations like that, right? Because because they happen all the time. And yet, even if they are common, Paul does not treat this lightly. He is calling them out, elevating it to the whole church. And it's not just that he's calling them out. He's saying, you, you know, he says, you loyal yoke fellow, probably the person who's reading it, one of the leaders, help them. He's calling the church to help them because this is a big deal that two mature Christians, even though the issue isn't that big of a deal, that the two mature Christians are not getting along. Now, why is that? Why, why is this something where, in some ways, the whole letter is moved and the final chapter, this is where he lands it? It's because when, in the church, two Christians aren't getting along, it's not just a matter of two Christians not being able to get along. It's because there is nothing that hurts a church, that weakens its mission, that undermines the very gospel itself, like disunity. You know, back in chapter 1, Paul is already kind of pointing in this direction, where he says, only do this. After he's talked about his struggle, then he calls them, I want you to fight side by side with one mind, for the gospel. 
And if you do this, even in the face of opposition, it will be a sign to everyone around that what you have is real. That's essentially what the end of chapter 1 is saying. And the reason is because the gospel is not just about Jesus bringing people into heaven. The gospel is about Jesus making all things new, uniting us to God and uniting us to each other, making us the way we were supposed to be. And so when unity is expressed, that shows the reality of the gospel. And when unity is denied, it undermines it. I mean, we can imagine why that would be. We know how that is. I mean, how many of us know of stories of churches that seem to be going well, but then there was some sort of bitterness, some sort of conflict, and it just broke the church apart? And maybe that was going on even here. You have, you know, Yodia and Syntyche never staying on the same side of the congregation, rarely being in the same room. And when they are, it's always awkward and they kind of have these polite smiles towards each other. And these friends who love both of them because both of them are key parts of the church don't know what to do. Do they take sides? Don't they? It's, it's divisive. Now, what do you think would happen if a newcomer stepped into that situation and kind of go, I have no idea what's going on here, but this is not healthy and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Disunity undermines the mission. It undermines the very gospel itself. And this is why Paul brings the church into it. It's why he says they need to get involved because it's not just a relationship between two people that's at stake. It's the gospel itself. I wonder if we recognize that. I wonder if we would be so willing to treat conflict with such seriousness. Because there are a couple of things I think that probably would, would kind of push us away from that mentality. One of them is we have such a strong emphasis on, on, emphasis on privacy, don't we? I mean, hey, that's between you and me. You guys shouldn't get involved. That's our general disposition. Okay, we'll leave it alone. And the other thing is because conflict is super messy. And if we're honest, we would far, far rather just kind of keep it at arm's length because it is, it's a quagmire. But, but Paul is pushing us in a different direction. He is saying, this is such a big deal that I'm going to name it, and I'm going to say, you guys need to work on it together because the fate of the church and the glory of Christ is at stake when two Christians can't get along. It's a big deal. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there. It wouldn't be very kind of him, too, to just basically say, you guys need to agree on each other, and he doesn't do anything more. No, the rest of the chapter, the rest of our passage, that is, is him then empowering the church to know how to deal with this, to move towards the peace that we are called to for wanting to honor Christ. Maybe you noticed when it was being read, at the end of each of the next two paragraphs, after some instructions, it finishes with a promise of peace. The peace of Christ will be with you. And then the last paragraph, the God of peace will be with you. In other words, after he's saying they need to get along and work with him, he's saying, now let me tell you how to find that peace that you need. And here's what's interesting to me. As he moves the church forward, as he moves us forward to being in peace, he doesn't He doesn't go the places that oftentimes we might be inclined to go. He doesn't talk about communication techniques and I statements and how you listen well and making sure you assert. Those things are important. But to Paul, those things are not absolutely fundamental. Where he goes first is to the kind of people we are. Are we peacemakers? How do we become peacemakers? 
Think for a moment about the last argument you found yourself in with someone you cared about. Not, not with someone that's just, you know, like an, an enemy, for lack of a better word. Not someone you really get frustrated. But someone that you're somewhat close to. Or maybe you're not someone who argues because you hate conflict. So maybe for you, it's someone that you, because you were really frustrated with, you just were frustrated for a long period of time, but not wanting to engage. Now, I'm sure sometimes there are very significant issues that you're facing, and sometimes you are deeply wrong, but I also suspect that for most of us, if we look back, we feel a certain degree of regret because we realize ways that we were defensive. Why do I always get so defensive? Ways that we were so intent on making sure we were heard and just not doing a job of listening. Maybe I'm speaking autobiographically here because I know that's true of me. So much of the problem that we have with conflict is about us. It's about the kind of people we are. And so as Paul invites us to the way of peace, he focuses us on how we can become peacemakers. And not surprisingly, knowing Paul, he lifts our gaze towards Christ. And he really focuses on two things. He says, our hearts need to relinquish control to Jesus. And our minds need to be oriented towards Jesus. If we do these two things, then we will experience peace. So first, we have this this call for our hearts to relinquish control. Again, if you notice at the very end of the the, the second paragraph in our passage, we have this amazing promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. He's not just talking about an inner peace, although that's part of it. He's talking about a peace that allows you to be at peace with others. And how? How does that happen? Well, he gives three instructions, and all of them are about relinquishing control to Christ. First one, he says, is rejoice in the Lord. Imagine for just a moment that you found your joy not in how capable you are or how well you're doing, that your sense of self-worth was not about how people viewed you or about your success, but instead your sense of self-worth and satisfaction and joy was found entirely in the fact that you belong to Jesus and that everything that is his belongs to you. His righteousness is yours. His glory, his beauty is yours. Imagine if your joy was entirely caught up in that. How do you think that would affect the way you relate towards others? I'll tell you one almost miraculous thing that I think we would discover as we move in that direction, and that is we would find that it's safe to be wrong. We would find that we no longer need to hold on to our defensiveness. We no longer need to do damage control. That we can be absolutely, completely, ridiculously wrong in a situation and yet still be okay. Why? Because because our joy is not caught. In fact, not just okay, we could still be joyful because our joy is not caught up in just how good of a person we are or how well we've done or how much we're pleasing others. Our joy would be caught up in the fact that we belong to Jesus and he is ours. And it's okay for me to screw up in that I don't need to defend myself against it because I have Christ. Rejoicing in the Lord is a key part of us being able to handle conflict well. 
Second command, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Gentleness is not, sometimes we think of it as kind of being a pushover, someone who's kind of passive, but that's not what it is. Gentleness is the careful choice to refrain from using power. It's, it's choosing to speak softly when you could have yelled. It's choosing to figure out how to frame your words as encouraging feedback rather than damaging criticism. It's choosing to forgive when instead you could hold on to anger. And of course, that gentleness is a key part of how we are at peace with each other. But notice how he says we need to to be gentle. He says, the key to that is knowing that the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? Here's where Paul, I think, is going here. You, when you are in a conflict with someone and you know that you're misunderstood, you don't have to force your way into being understood. And when you feel like you have been wronged, you don't need to force your way into making things right and to get vengeance because the Lord is near. Jesus understands you even if that other person doesn't, and he is taking care of you. And Jesus is going to vindicate you. You know, there's a promise that we have. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We don't need to wreak vengeance. God has that in his hand. The Lord is near, so you don't need to be controlling that situation. What's more, sometimes when we are in conflict, part of what is so hard is you see a clear fault in the other person. And your, your greatest temptation is to try to fix it. I'm sure that was what's going, you know, maybe Yodia and Sinktaki, you know, Sinktaki sees that Yodia is not thinking carefully, trying to fix that. Meanwhile, Yodia sees things, but it's not working. The thing is, we can't fix anyone, and we don't need to. The Lord is near. As much as we might care about that other person growing, Jesus cares all the more. You can't change the person, but you can relax and know that Jesus has got it. He is near, and the things that you see in that person, Jesus sees more clearly, and he is working on. You can be gentle. You don't have to force your way because the Lord is near. And the third command, all of this kind of pointing in the same direction, has to do with our anxieties, which, which totally makes sense. Because if you think about the arguments that you get into, how often do your anxieties come into play? You find yourself threatened by something the other person is saying, or maybe you're just already stressed out and so you're snapping and you get angry quickly. For us to actually be at peace with each other, we need to know how to deal with our anxieties. And what does Paul say? Here's what you do with your anxieties. You pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. We pray to deal with our anxieties. Why? Because what is anxiety actually? What's actually going on? Isn't it when there is something that really matters to us, and we really don't have control over it, but somehow we believe that if we just worry hard enough, we will change things? I mean, isn't that what's going on? There's just, if I keep thinking about it, if I keep worrying, that's what's going on. It's psychotic. It just doesn't work. And it stresses us out. And that's totally the wrong way to do it. The better thing is when we really have a desire and we know we can't control with it, to recognize we have no control. God does. Let's talk to him about it. I love the threshold here. In everything. You know, sometimes I think we're worried that something that we're going to pray about is too small. But everything. I mean, 
If you are afraid that you are not going to get a parking space in the city, pray about it. If you're worried about your exams this week, pray about it. Or even thinking about in a relationship, when you are finding yourself threatened because maybe your spouse is wanting to do something that is a change and you don't like change, step back and even pray about that. See, when we think that things are too small for us to pray about, we're actually thinking something really ridiculous. Because what we're implying is that there are some things that we pray about that God would just kind of stop and go, whoa, that's a really big deal. I will make sure I pay attention to that. When nothing is like that to God, you know, nothing is a big deal to God. But everything that matters to you is important to him because you are amazingly important to God. And so instead of holding on to our anxieties and fighting to control it, what happens when we pray? We are releasing control. When we're giving thanks, all the more so when we're recognizing how God is taking so good care of us. I mean, imagine for a moment, next time you are in a, a conflict, an argument, whatever term you want to use for it, with a good friend or with your spouse, and you're finding yourself kind of ratcheting up in defensiveness and anxiety, what would happen if you just kind of took a time out and say, hey, I need to step back for a few minutes? Maybe went for a walk and prayed and recognized, what are the things that I'm really fearful of right now? And, and, and brought them before God and then came back to the conversation. Knowing that God has it in control, how would that change the way you deal with conflict? And do you see how all of these are all about the same thing? Rejoice not in your ego, but in who Jesus is and his connection to you. Be gentle because Jesus is near and he's got things under control. Don't be anxious, but bring it before God in prayer because he is the one you can trust with these things. Again and again, Paul is saying, let your heart surrender control over the things it doesn't have control over anyway and entrust it to Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Do you see how that changes us into peacemakers as we let go of the control that we don't have anyway? But there's another paragraph where we also have this, this promise of peace. The God of peace will be with you, says the very end of that final paragraph. And whereas the second paragraph is about our hearts releasing control, the, the final paragraph is much more about our thoughts. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's a command about our thought life. And that, and that word think is not just like think happy thoughts. It's a, a thinking that's involving pondering, considering, thinking hard about. You know, I came across uh, a story this week. I think it's around Mr. Rogers' 50th anniversary. And uh, I read a, a story about him. There is this man who at the time when this thing happened, he was a college student. And he, he wrote about how just one time he was passing a dorm room and he saw Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and he just found himself transfixed. And he just realized there was something really soothing and, and important and what he needed at that moment. Well, a couple weeks later, to his great surprise, he was in Pittsburgh. He was in an elevator and who walks in but Fred Rogers. 
And he says, like, you know, he's having this geek out moment. He's trying to figure out how do I handle myself without making Mr. Rogers uncomfortable. So he doesn't say anything until they're they're walking out of the elevator. And so then he speaks and he says, um, Mr. Rogers, I, I, you know, it's like, you know, what do you call him besides that, right? Mr. Rogers, I just I want you to know that that the work that you've done has meant a lot to me. And and Fred Rogers kind of pauses and says, Were you one of my television neighbors growing up? And he says, yes, yes, I was. And Fred Rogers gives him a hug. But the story doesn't stop there. They're they're kind of walking out the lobby, and they're starting to kind of talk about the the pianist for Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and whatnot. But this this guy is actually going through a really hard time. And at a certain point, he just says, you know what? I just saw your show again a couple weeks ago, and I just want you to know it meant a lot to me. And, and he says, Fred Rogers kind of paused, looked at him, removed his scarf, because of course that was Fred, what Fred Rogers does, points to an area to sit, and says, do you want to tell me what's troubling you so? And then this guy just kind of like loses it. And they're talking for a while about the grandfather that died and how hard it was. And eventually he apologizes to Fred Rogers and says, I'm sorry, I know I took you from whatever you were doing. Says, Fred Rogers says, sometimes you just are where you need to be. Now, I'll tell you, and I don't even know exactly why, when I read that, I was like, like tears were in my eyes, like, that's just so beautiful. But there was something about that that was like, that's good. There's something about that that is, that is beautiful and that is praiseworthy, and when I'm thinking about it, I find myself longing to be more that way. There is something about when our thoughts attend to what is good that causes the good to kind of expand, to grow, to, to shape us. There's this old uh, computer programmer's phrase. They say, garbage in, garbage out. Bad programming means you're going to get a bad program. Well, there's something similar to us. Garbage in, the more that our minds are just focused on things that are dark, that are bitter, that are unhappy, and that becomes what we're pondering all the time, of course it's going to make us into miserable people, and it's going to affect the way we relate to each other. But if we focus on the things that in this world are truly good and beautiful and lovely, that expands within us. Now, Paul pushes this beyond just thinking about things in a generic term. He says in verse 9, what you've seen in me, what you've heard from me, the things that I have demonstrated act the same way. What have we seen in Paul? We have seen a complete and utter devotion to Jesus, right? My life is Christ. To live is Jesus. And so I think what he's saying here is, as you are gazing on what is good and what is beautiful and your mind is considering, I want you to realize that you are already being lifted up to Christ in your minds and recognize that that's who it is that you're considering. When you think of beautiful, when you think of the good moments that I just described in that story, realize that comes from Jesus. And that's just a picture of who Jesus is. And let your mind and your heart be fixed on him. Because as it is, what is good will expand. Because here's the thing. Drawing near to Jesus draws us near to each other. Because Jesus unites us. And I came across this really interesting um, little fact. I was reading Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, which I highly recommend. Very good book. I was struck by this. He he, he pointed out over 90% of Muslims live in a a one geographical area banned from Southeast Asia to the Middle East and Northern Africa. 
Over 95% of all Hindus are in India and its immediate surroundings. Some 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. However, about 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in growing fast in Asia, and 12% in North America. Isn't that interesting? Christianity seems to be the one belief that, that transcends every ethnic and economic boundary in a way that no other does. And here's why I think that is. Every other faith ultimately demands something about you for it to work for you. So if it's Hinduism, maybe you have to be part of a certain caste. If it's Judaism, then you have to be faithful to the Jewish law. There's some way that you have to live up to a certain standard before you can be accepted or welcomed in. Not so with Christianity. With Christianity, it's about what Jesus has done. And he welcomes all. It doesn't matter how terrible you have been. doesn't matter what tribe you are from. It doesn't matter what ethnic or economic or whatever. It's all about Jesus. So all are welcome. Which means the answer to, to racism, the answer to sexism, the answer to the great divides that we're feeling even within our country are only going to be found in Jesus because Jesus is the one who transcends all boundaries. And it's true about our relationships as well. The more our minds are fixed on Jesus, on the one who welcomed you before you did anything that deserved it, on the one who embraces you and forgives you and is patient with you, though time after time we blow it, he continues to love and forgive, the more that we see that, how can that not change the way we will be towards others? See, Jesus unites here, Paul says, is the way to be peacemakers. Relinquish control to Jesus. Set your minds on Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts. The God of peace will be with you. You will experience peace. You will be able, Yodi and Syntyche, to be able to be reconciled. Because Jesus is the one who can do it, even if you can't. I just want to close by, by noting what we have here. This is not, I know sometimes when there's instructions, it can feel like we have this overwhelming set of things that we need to do. And oh man, God is giving us a whole bunch of rules. That's not where God is coming from here. Do you realize what we see about God? God is passionate about love. That's what's fueling this. God is love. We read that in the Bible. And God loves us, but that's not where his love stops. He wants us to experience love between each other, and he will not rest. He will not be satisfied until we experience that wholeness, that delight that comes in truly being, experiencing love towards each other, which means whenever there is that rupture, whenever that is break because of disunity, whether it is between friends, whether it's within a marriage, whether it's between father and son, anything taking place within the church that happens, it's not something we should rest satisfied with. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that unites us, is a gospel that invites us into the freedom of peace and the freedom of love. And like for us, as we always do after thinking about God's word, just to take a moment to think about this 
And perhaps you can even think of ways where you, either you've been holding on to control and there's anxiety or your thoughts have been more focused where they shouldn't be, or you just are aware of a person that you right now are at odds with and you need to figure out how to be reconciled. I'd like you along with me to take some time just kind of responding to God in, in confession and prayer and I'll lead us in a little while. Let's silently pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who cares about our relationships. Thank you that you will not rest until we are reconciled towards each other and that you give us in Christ the one who can bridge the barriers of relationship that so many of us experience. Father, where there are occasions where we could be at peace with someone but we are not, we pray that you help us to entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we confess our own fear, our own selfishness, our own defensiveness, whether it's something that we're experiencing right now towards someone or we know sometimes we experience it when we're in conflict and we ask, Lord, that you would lead us more closely to Christ, that you would help us to be people who are able to just be at peace with others and not be defensive and not be angry, but be able to be welcoming and loving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.